Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 178. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together once again tonight. We ask that your spirit would be with us and that he would guide us and help us to not only appreciate the fact that your words have been preserved for us, but help us to dig deeper. Help us to... Um, uh, actively search for application so that we can um, uh, live lives that are pleasing to you, so that we can um, be forgiving of one another, so that we can um, uh, be light and salt and uh, ambassadors for your kingdom. Uh, so uh, it's for that reason that we study. We don't just do this so that we can get together and share with each other and chat, although those are elements of these live studies and we're thankful for them. But Ultimately, your word is that which is going to equip us. It's our tool for right living, and it's the Holy Spirit that's going to help us to activate it and to put it into practice. So we seek his assistance, and we'll give you the praise and glory, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump right into our Matthew study. Uh, this is a study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And the study is affectionately called Judaism v. Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? That's the essential um, uh, meat of what we're talking about. And so let's jump off, or let's jump in where we left off. We're, basically, we're looking at um, different uh, Christian commentaries at this perspective, at this point in my commentary. This is a study that's based on a commentary that I wrote, and it's available on my website at uh, tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. And right on the homepage, there's a cluster of links, and uh, they're alphabetized. So the, the Matthew study, um, examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17, is probably right near the very top. But anyway, um, it, we'll be looking at the study momentarily. Let's read through the relevant um, scripture passage that I'm borrowing from Matthew 9 first. I've got ESV pulled up for you on the screen. Let me just read this, um, this section right here that I just highlighted in blue on your screen. It reads, quote, then, this is verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Jesus, Yeshua, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, neither is, there, uh, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And that's the end of the story. It's found in two other gospel accounts of the four total. There's three that it's found in. And in one of the accounts, it's actually even called a parable. So we're looking at the story, and um, most commentators are going to kind of link all three of the elements of the story, the part about the wedding and the fasting. That's part A. There's like A, B, C parts. The B part is the part about the cloth and the garment, and then the C part, or one, two, three, the third part is the part about the wine and the wineskins. And most commentators are going to say that this is really um, a story that Yeshua sharing with his listeners, those people around him, he's using, of course, um, anecdotal or common sense type of examples, you know, everyday 
uh, uh, objects that people would be familiar with. And so this would have made a lot of sense to them back then. But he's really trying to teach them a bigger picture, a bigger lesson. So that's what we're looking at. So let's jump into um, some of the commentaries that we've been looking at. All right, so we've already looked at Pastor John Piper. We've already looked at uh, questions.org. These are um, different uh, sections of my commentary. Let me scroll now down to the section uh, entitled Example from Pastor John MacArthur. And uh, most of you in Christian circles know who Pastor John MacArthur is. Very well um, articulated, very well uh, educated, and very well um, uh, very well spoken of um, pastor. I mean, um, I, I highly respect him. I, I, I listen to his commentaries uh, quite a lot, and I've been following his teachings for 25 years now or something like that, probably even longer um, because I started listening to him way back when I was an FM radio DJ uh, back in Colorado. So, um, and that was back in the 80s. So let's jump down into my commentary and look at some of his notes on these particular passages. We already jumped into his uh, study a few weeks back. We missed last week, um, but we're picking up the study again now. So um, if you missed episode number 177, go back to my website or to my YouTube channel and watch the um, YouTube video there. But let me back up and read um, part of the last uh, paragraph that we looked at and we'll notice something that, that I think is a bit shocking, a bit kind of harsh when it comes to speaking about Judaism and things like that. Pastor uh, MacArthur says that any form of, well, let's just highlight it for you. He says that any form of Judaism without Jesus Christ is a false religion. Now he's lumping all forms of Judaism outside of Yeshua, so this would be anything that other than Messianic Judaism, he calls these a false religion. He says um, it's empty, bankrupt, damning, and it might as well be Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or atheism, right? Meaning it doesn't matter that it's Judaism. So he's really giving a fairly harsh treatment of Judaism. I say in, in later on in my study that I can agree in part with this bold summary sentence. And I think those are John MacArthur's bolded notes, but it doesn't matter. Those are his words. And I think that's it's a bit too harsh. And the reason I say that, and I mentioned this last week, so I won't wax long on it. It's because Judaism, in fact, without Jesus, it's true that ultimately it's not going to give the relationship with God that God is looking for, right? The Bible has an end goal, and the goal is to bring a person to a saving knowledge of Jesus as the very Son of God, as your very personal Savior, as um, the only one who can uh, save you from your sin, your substitute uh, for your sin, um, a substitute for your for the atonement, that is, right? Um so substitutionary atonement. Uh, Yeshua is the bridge back to God. He's the only way tr- uh, to the Father. You know, Yeshua said it best. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. So um, Judaism without Messiah is going to fail in that endeavor. And so in that respect, I, un- I think I understand where Pastor MacArthur is trying to go, right? It doesn't matter if you're Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or atheism, Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. Outside of Messiah, um, ultimately that 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 uh, religion's going to uh, fail at the end of the day. But I think what Pastor MacArthur might not be fair to is the fact that 
Judaism is a unique religion among all these other comparative religions, including Christianity. And that doesn't mean it's unique in a positive way that would equate it with Christianity. But we also have to remember that Christianity was birthed from Judaism. So we'll keep talking about this um, during the study. Um, and as we go along, I'll explain myself a little bit more. But here's what Pastor MacArthur continues to say. Speaking, and these are my words first, speaking of Yeshua's selection of Matthew, the tax collector, as one of his disciples, right? So I'm kind of giving you a heads up on the the kind of the context of the, the, the next notes from Pastor MacArthur. Here's what he has to say. The Pharisees then have concluded this just adds to their firmness in that conclusion that Jesus is espousing a religious view very different from theirs or very different than theirs. Now, again, Judaism is a religion of the um, of the Jewish people or the Judaisms. We could even say it that way if you'd like to. Um, there were, in other words, there was more than one denomination of Judaism that was present in the first century, just like there's more than one denomination of Christianity that's present today. So, but we don't usually say Christianities, but in in first century, we could really say the Judaisms. But um, given the fact that there were competing um, perspectives on messianic uh, um, identity, messianic uh, contenders, and things like that, when Yeshua hit the scene, he's going to have a lot in common with one of the groups known as the Pharisees, and he's going to have some some major clashes with some of the other kind of denominations or sects of Judaism that were present during that time. And the Pharisees, remember, they're 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 challenging him. Hey along with John's disciples at this point in time, how come you guys aren't fasting, right? Um, what's the what's the deal? You're not um, holding to the traditions that we hold dear. You're, you're bucking um, the traditions. You're, you're, you're unnecessarily going against the grain. You're doing things radically different. And Pastor MacArthur sees this as a conclusion that Jesus is teaching or espousing a religious view that's radically different than theirs. And um, he goes on, he's going to flesh this out, so I don't need to get ahead of myself. He says, it's really important that we understand this particular fact about that this is a different religious view. Now, again, if we're simply talking about the kind of stereotypical, um, what Christianity describes as legalism in the first century, where they think that the Jewish people were keeping the Torah or keeping commandments for the express purpose of um, bringing about personal salvation or something to that effect, right? Works religion or works theology. Merit theology is the way Catholicism would describe it. Um, if that's the the uh, difference that John MacArthur is trying to highlight between Jesus' religion and the religion of the Jewish people, then yes, that would be true because we know if, in point in fact that Jesus is not an advocate of works-based righteousness where righteousness is equal to uh, salvation. So um, Yeshua would certainly not um, agree that you can work your way into heaven. He would certainly not be in um, agreement that the commandments of Moses were to be utilized as a simplistic ladder or tool to earn your way into God's presence or into God's kingdom. That would be true. However, um, let's keep reading uh, Pastor MacArthur and see if he's going to explain why I think that maybe he's being just a little too harsh with Judaism. Um, I mean, 
this is in all fairness that Yeshua was the one in Matthew, I want to say it's chapter 23 or somewhere around there, where he just, I mean, he just lambasts the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He just lays them bare. Um, you know, one, and two, uh, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you know, and he just, he's just like, he's, he's making it plain that they are just absolutely missing the point of God's giving the commandments and God's bringing them, sending the Messiah into the world um, to, um, you know, make a way for man to be found truly righteous. And the, the hypocrisy that was rampant in that day, I mean, there was legalism, but it was a different brand of legalism. It's only unique flavor. Let's see what Pastor MacArthur has to say. Maybe we'll, we'll get to the part that I'm really um, highlighting. Pastor MacArthur says, eventually they, speaking of the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders uh, in that particular town and in that particular area, they eventually killed him for it. Right, and what are they? What are, what are they killing him for? For his pointing out their hypocrisy, for his um, highlighting their sin, for his bringing to light the, their 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 inconsistencies in their theology, for their rejection of him, um, for their um, elevating their own perspective above that of God Himself. They weren't aware that that's what their perspective was. They thought they were doing God a favor by putting this supposed blasphemer to the stake, but. They had him killed. They had him put away. They didn't like the the um, um, charges that he was leveling against them, right? Hypocrisy. How dare you call us a hypocrite? You're the one who's got a demon. You're the one who's who's um, uh, leading people astray, etc., etc. Pastor MacArthur continues. He says, they, speaking of the religious leaders in Yeshua's day, they were absolutely convinced that not only was his religion different than theirs, theirs came from God and his came from Satan. Like I said, they thought he was a demoniac, right? They were quite convinced that he was doing miracles under the power of Beelzebub, the prince of um, the the devils, right? And so, um, and he called that, Yeshua responded by telling them, you know, you guys are committing the unpardonable sin by telling me that I'm doing, um, um, you know, uh, miracles by the power of Beelzebub and things like that. You're, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And so um, these were serious charges. Um, MacArthur goes on to say they would be they would be the first ones to say there's no compatibility between Judaism and the message of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to insert my own comments here for a second. So what if we were to put it on the other foot? We we in today's circles are con- fond of of thinking that Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another. And why? We might say because Judaism is a religion of works. And Christianity is a religion of grace, right? Judaism is a religion of deed, and Christianity is a religion of creed, really, right? Um, that's just a joke, just a pun. Um, but um, in Yeshua's day, were they ready to hear the message that he was sending? Was what he was teaching so radically different from Judaism? Was it that the old wine and the new wine couldn't um, coexist? Right, the old cloth and the new cloth couldn't coexist. Is that really what's going on? Remember, we're talking about this parable or this story in Matthew 9, 14 through 17 that mentions these elements, and most Christian commentaries interpret the cloth and the wine as elements re, uh, are referring to Judaism or the Jewish religion. And the fact that Yeshua says that there's some incompatibility issues between the cloth and the old piece, the patch, and the new cloth, or the new patch and the old cloth, things like that, and the new wine and the old wine skins, and the wine and the and um, the incompatibility issues are to be interpreted as incompatibility issues between religious worldviews and things like that. And I 
speaking of John MacArthur's um, comments here, I say, yes, it is true, right? Speaking that they, the religious leaders, they were challenging Yeshua and they were, they were really ready to say, look, you're bringing us things that we don't want to hear. You're, you're telling us stuff that doesn't work for us. So in that regard, yes, it's true, but such sentiments would originate from a darkened heart. So it's, understandable right there's no reason i add there's no reason for true believers to echo such sentiments once the eyes of our heart have been enlightened so what i mean is there are there were in yeshua's day in the first century there were jewish people who listened to yeshua's message considered what he had to say and then accepted it and for those religious jews not not talking about the Gentiles, just the religious Jews. Did they make a break from Judaism? That's the challenge. That's my question to those of you who say, well, Jesus came to bring a new religion because the old religion was bankrupt. Judaism had run its course. It was worn out. It was dried up. It was um, darkened. It was... Um, you know, it was, it was, it had gone off the deep end. And so therefore it's time for a reboot, you know, to use kind of today's modern terminology. It was time for, um, Jesus to come and reboot the whole, the whole franchise, right? Judaism required a reboot. And so he came and brought Christianity and kicked Judaism out. Judaism was out. Christianity was in the law of Moses out the law of Christ in, right? Um, old Testament out new Testament in, right? Um, that's kind of the, the, the mindset that we play with today and where we, we just kind of accept as, um, as common interpretation when it comes to reading through passages like the one we're looking at. Um, Pastor MacArthur continues, and what I mean, by the way, I'm sorry, is that if those religious Jews of Yeshua's day felt the same way that we talk about today, well, then we would expect that they did start a new religion, including the Apostle Paul, who would come after Yeshua. Did they start a new religion? Right, brand new religion known as Christianity, um, something that they never was brand you know that was never before ever um, spoken of in the in the Tanakh and the prophets. Right? Are we looking at a brand new entity? Um, I mean, it, it, we're, we are talking about one new man, right? Ephesians chapter two. But what does that one new man look like? That's my point. Eventually, we're going to have to contend with the fact that Gentiles are going to be brought into this religion, and that's going to drastically and radically alter even the forms of Judaism in the first day to the first century to the point that they're going to have to make a break from this uh, quote unquote new perspective, this new religion, this new outlook on on uh, approaching God. Yes, that did push Judaism eventually to the breaking point, but let's go back a little earlier first. Let's go back to Yeshua's day and back to Paul's day. Um, are we talking about a new religion? Here's what Pastor MacArthur continues to say. It is a message foreign to us. It is alien to us. It is contrary to us. It is destructive to our religion, right? Sharing the sentiments of the um, first century Jewish people, um, you know, the way they would have reacted against Yeshua's challenging words, his stinging, stinging, uh, not stinking, stinging accusations, right? It is such a threat to our religion that it's purveyor, this man, Jesus, he needs to be killed. And so again, I think Pastor MacArthur is, is somewhat accurately capturing perhaps maybe the way that religious Jews were um, thinking. I mean, it must have been something to that effect because they eventually did put Yeshua to death. They they sent him before Pilate and said, crucify him, right? Away with him. We don't, we don't, we don't want to hear what this guy has to say anymore. But 
Um, and of, and I, I know that Pastor MacArthur knows that this is because their hearts were darkened. Is it because Judaism failed? Here's my question. The indictment against um, that Pastor MacArthur is leveling against um, the religious leaders of Yeshua's day and their reaction of wanting to kill Yeshua because of the way he spoke and 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 um, the way he highlighted their sin and the way he he exposed their hypocrisy and the way he he showed the the absurdity of their um, traditions, uh, the ones that had you know that had replaced the word of God, and, um, the way he um, showed how they were self-serving. They weren't serving God. They weren't serving the community. They were really self-serving. Is this because of a failed religion? Or is it because men's hearts fail where God's truth should prevail? Understand what I'm saying? Is there something wrong with the Torah that it needed to be replaced, right? The religion of Judaism that sprung up around the lifestyle described in the Torah. Is that the deficiency or was it Israel's hearts? Was it the hearts of the leaders, the hearts of the people? Was it um, the, 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 what we might call the human condition, right? Um, sin and all its ugliness, right? And the Torah simply comes along and highlights our sin. We would do well one day to study Romans chapter 7. Maybe I'll do a study on Romans chapter 7. But I can just tell you right away, in that, in that passage, in that chapter, Paul um, lays the blame at the feet of of humans right we are the ones who have the heart condition the, the the torah simply plays this kind of diabolical role where it highlights sin and in so doing makes us candidates to be slain by the very spirit of god so that the new man can be birthed the old man has to die the new man can be brought to life right it's the born again experience so pastor macarthur is describing the sentiments of the religious leaders let's keep reading his thoughts and of course they were right right they're absolutely right there is no compatibility between judaism and the apostate form of judaism that existed then and has continued to exist without christ through the centuries and exists today and again pastor macarthur is saying there's no compatibility between uh what did he say between judaism the apostate form of judaism existed then there's no compatibility between Judaism, the apostate form, and Yeshua's uh, teachings. Again, uh, what if the person changes? Pa Apostle Paul is a perfect test case. This is what I would ask Pastor MacArthur if I had a chance to speak to him face to face. Paul was a Jewish man. He practiced Judaism as the religion before he knew Jesus, before he knew his own personal Savior. But on the road to Damascus, he had... A, a blinding experience, right? The Holy Spirit opened his eyes, and eventually he came to profess Jesus as Lord. And so he accepted Jesus as Messiah, but did he switch religions? If we want to say he left Judaism and embraced or created them, embraced Christianity, that's really going to be a hard sell because there wasn't really a form of Christianity available in the first century that we would recognize, at least not as we compare it to today's Christianities. If we want to say he left non-messianic judaism and embraced messianic judaism i could go for that i can understand that and if we and if we want to call messianic judaism and first century christianity the same thing i could even accept that right i'm on board with that as well because first century christianity was really a subset of judaism the form of judaism that embraced jesus as messiah so that's what we're trying to challenge here is it necessary to 
um, to discard the Jewish religion, the part that doesn't believe in Jesus, in order to embrace Jesus and the religion that Jesus is presenting, right? Is Judaism and Christian, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? That's the discussion we're having today or tonight as we're talking about Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Let's continue for another few minutes. And so my comments, I say yes, but what if both Judaism and the Jewish practitioner both underwent a radical transformation once Yeshua entered the picture? Again, that's basically highlighting what I just talked about a moment ago. Let's go ahead and finish. I think we can finish this paragraph. Um, and do I want to finish both paragraphs? I'm just scrolling down through it and taking a look. Nope, there's quite a bit to speak of here. Um, so let's just read one more paragraph and then we'll um, call it quits for this uh, part of the study tonight. Doctor, I'm sorry, uh, I think he is a doctor, but let's, let's just call him Pastor. Pastor MacArthur continues, Judaism, Judaism at its most devout level, Judaism at its most self-righteous level, Judaism as the extreme religion, Judaism with all its connection to the Old Testament, all its desire to revere the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, that Judaism is completely out of touch with God. Right, very stinging, very um, indicting, a very, very uh, challenging and unnerving to the religious Jew to hear these types of words. This type of Judaism is completely out of touch with God's salvation. He continues, purposely, completely out of touch with with the Son of God, completely out of touch with the gospel. All right now, keep in mind this is a a transcript of a live sermon, so that's the tone of um in the tenor of, of what we're reading here it's it's actually a live sermon that gets turned into a written commentary and so that's why it's very kind of unusual kind of terse kind of in your face this was originally a, a spoken message and he continues they were into self-righteousness now pause pause for a moment i agree that they were into self-righteousness but what we need to do is take a better look at the unique form of self-righteousness that the Judaism's practiced in the first century. Not that it really made a difference from their perspective. Um, you know, um, it was still a blindness that that um, kept them from seeing the true purpose of the Torah, the true role of the Messiah in their lives, the true need that they had for Jesus' teachings, right? The radical transformation of the heart and the circumcision of the heart, you know, the, the change of the man from the inside, the, burn, the born-again experience. It is true that their self-righteous behavior uh, prohibited them from seeing uh, what Yeshua was trying to teach. Um, but the point I'm trying to highlight is that uh it's it's not really the best um, practice or interpretation to describe the Jewish religion as failing as compared to the religious people who are walking that religious uh, that religion out. So I think it's allowable to separate, as far as I can tell, to separate the lifestyle that the Bible describes by God for His people and differentiate between that and the people who failed to walk out that lifestyle. So let me close, uh, let me read uh, Pastor um, MacArthur's comments, and then I'll close down the study night. Um, he says, speaking of Yeshua, he preached grace, and they were into denying that they were sinful, right? 
they were like, we're not guilty. We're not slaves. <laughs> um, Yeshua preached repentance from sin. However, by contrast, they were proud of their religiosity, right? Jesus preached humility. They were into external ceremony, keeping in with their um, differences. Uh, he, speaking of Yeshua, he preached a transformed heart. They held tightly to the old, and he offered the new. Again, this is um, from our 21st century perspective that the New Testament has replaced the old. This is the common perspective in, in most Christian circles kind of been handed down for uh for you know for century after century in christian history that the Tanakh was out the, the apostolic scriptures are in moses was out jesus is in um toro's out uh you know laws out grace is in things like that so um let's continue reading pastor MacArthur's just this uh paragraph and then we'll call it quits here they loved the approval of men and yeshua jesus he offered the approval of god they had ritual and he offered a relationship and i say sad but true indictment of the first century judaisms and if we just take it at face value without trying to maybe um make excuses for why the first century jewish leaders a good majority of them rejected uh, yeshua's message then i can accept uh, john macarthur's um scathing indictment that's that we're reading about here however as we're going to keep reading this and we'll call it close tonight we'll call it quiz tonight as we're going to keep looking at this we're going to see that it's necessary really in all fairness to understand that it's not god's fault that the jewish people were in the predicament that they were by the time yeshua hit the scene they had failed god god had not failed them God's word remains true no matter if every man is a liar. And so the Spirit of God has always been in the business of trying to help man understand how God brings truth to the matter. The word of God is that staple of truth. It's that standard of God's righteousness. And man is given the choice and the ability to trust God, to allow the spirit of God to open his eyes, to circumcise his heart, and to begin to walk into the righteous standard that God is expecting of him. Judaism as a religion, not the part that God had given in the Torah, but the Jewish people had created a kind of a shell of a religion that was built up around the Torah, and it had clouded the t the true message of God's word from 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 the people's ears and eyes, uh, the, their traditions and their fences and their halachot and all of their um, judgments and rulings and their their pride. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they're just baseless hatred towards uh, anyone who wasn't as righteous as they were. All of that became an issue. And so Yeshua came to cut through all of that darkness and to do what? To bring a new religion? I don't think so. I'll close with this. I think he came to bring them back to the true um, uh, standard that God, his father, had provided all along and to help them to understand that he was going to be the key in a right relationship with God, he was going to provide an opportunity for them to be able to allow the Spirit to circumcise their hearts. He was going to become the object of their faith in God. And in so doing, they would then be able to practice what God was requiring of them all along as found in the pages of the very Torah that they taught. And we'll stop there tonight with the Judaism v. Christianity. 
These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel Lyman Hana V, and I'm a Torah teacher at a real life congregation in Colorado, the Harvest Congregation. Kehilatunova is found in Thornton, Colorado. We'd love to have you join us in person. Or if you can't, or you're just not safe yet, don't feel that safe yet, at least go to our website at graftedin.com and um, take a look at the um, sermons that we upload via our YouTube channel and uh, watch the sermons that way. You can at least join us in fellowship, even if it's not live. These live internet studies are an extension of my own personal Torah teaching ministry, which is anchored in my own personal Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me uh, live for our live studies, but if not, at least go to my website and click around through all the links that you can see on my screen right now. It's not everything I offer. This is just kind of almost like an index. Um, uh, really, there's so much more to um, to see, and so please do click around and uh, see what you like there. I also have my own uh, YouTube channel that I'd uh, be happy to um, have you uh, take a look at as well. Um, you can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzay Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. My YouTube channel is updated daily. Uh, sometimes it's even twice a day. I try to keep quite busy. And um, if you do hit the YouTube channel, make sure you do um, something related to all the little uh, act calls to action that you see dancing on the screen right now in post-production. Those of you who are in the live class, you can't see it. Uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, right? Hit the thumbs up. Hit the bell for notification. Leave comments um, or questions or corrections and uh, share the uh, content with your friends and family in social media circles. Live internet studies. Let's talk about some of the brief details before we continue with our study. This is episode number 178 for May the 14th, 2022. That's the USA date. If you'd like to join us week after week, we meet Saturday evenings or late, kind of late Saturday afternoon, really from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Daylight Time. There's two 30-minute topics that make up the hour-long study. An examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Part 10 is what we just looked at a moment ago. We're ready to turn to segment two, uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be looking at part 10 tonight. And then we will watch a video a little later on tonight called, What Does the Bible Say About Christian Liberty? Right? Keeping with this theme of, are we really free from the law? Are we free from God's commandments? Are we just free to do whatever we want? Is that what the Bible teaches? Hope you can stick around for the video. Um, if you'd like to join us, get access to Skype somehow. Click the little blue Skype link that you can see on my screen right now. And if it's during the live class, like right now, it'll actually launch Skype in your browser. And then that's all you need, right? You're, you're boom, you're, you're in the class with us. But if not, um, download Skype. It's free. Install it on your smartphone or your, your watch or your pad, your iPad tablet or whatever you got there. And, uh, join us week after week for the Skype classes. But if not, at least take a moment. If you're on my website, just scroll down to the very bottom to that black section, that footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing, and um, prayerfully consider joining me uh, by way of uh, getting these teachings out and going around the world. I could use your financial assistance at this point in time. This would be a great way to donate to my new ministry. Just click the little yellow donate button, and I would be more than blessed to be on the receiving end of your generous uh, gifts there. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. 
Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and take some time to continue where we left off uh, two weeks ago. We're looking at the um, two uh, kind of perspectives on the nature of God through the lens of perspective one, Unitarianism. There's only one God, and he is um, he's of single makeup. He has no persons to him. There's no um, triune breakup or three, you know, three part one, two, and three, whatever you want to call them um, in your perspective. There's just one God. And when we talk about the spirit, we're simply talking about the spirit of the one God, meaning God himself. It's just another name for God. Or alternately, we could refer to the spirit of God as a, a power or a force or a... Um, um, uh, what we might call an influence that God can press upon a person, uh, um, you know, like he can impose thoughts into his thoughts into your thoughts or something to that effect. Um, that's the kind of the Unitarian perspective in the, in that perspective, Jesus comes alongside God as the highest creature of, of, of creation, at least in some forms of Unitarianism, not all, as I think I understand Unitarianism. Um, Jesus is the highest creature. He's an exalted man who's been sort of deified by God, right? Divinized is the word I think I've been using. And so we're looking at this perspective on Unitarianism versus uh, kind of what we might call Orthodox Trinitarianism, where there, in fact, there is one what and three who's one being known as God, and yet there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Trinitarian perspective that contradicts or counters the Unitarian perspective. And in that case, we're, we're now focusing on the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up our study. These are the words, or we're, we're really been, we've been borrowing um, kind of notes from Dr. Dale Tuggy, who's a, a very well-versed Trin- uh, Unitarian uh, speaker analytic theologian. And so now let's look at um, some more notes um, that are similar to Dr. Tuggy. These are my own commentary words first. I say additionally, in agreement with most of what Dr. Tuggy teaches, one popular internet source by the name of biblicalunitarian.com has this to say about the Holy Spirit. So let's look at their resource, all right? I try to use web resources as often as I can, rather than um, maybe just turning to a book or a piece of software like um, Accordance or, or, or something like that. And the reason, it's not because I don't trust those other resources. Rather, I'm trying to provide resources that you can go back on your own and look them up and study them and see if I'm maybe misreading them or misunderstanding them. So I'm fond of using online resources simply because they're available to anywhere, anyone anywhere else in the world. So let's read this from Biblical Unitarian. So we're looking at the triune nature of God, but we're specifically focusing on who or what is the Holy Spirit. That's the section we're in. Here's what um, that website has to say. Quote, since, quote, the only true God, in quote, is the Father, and since he is holy and he is spirit, he is also referred to in Scripture as the Holy Spirit. So, Remember, this is essentially the perspective, the, the, the Unitarian perspective that I, we just read here, that the Spirit is not a separate person, but he is, in fact, simply another name given to God, another way of describing God, since God is pure Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is, in fact, God himself. This perspective, which I don't hold to, not not in its totality, not in the way it's being worded and um, articulated. I do agree that the Scriptures give 
explanations of the Spirit that sometimes are simply a way for us to understand that we're talking about God the being, and that there's no need to insert this third person always into the conversation, right? As if God can't have a conversation or God can't be spoken of in the scriptures as a spirit, right? We can't always take, we can't each and every time take every passage where it mentions God, the word God and the word spirit and simply say, oh, there's two people here. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, Many verses are referring to God, the spirit, right? Uh, and so, um, meaning God is a spirit. He's not a person. He's not any, he doesn't have any other form. However, we also need to remind ourselves that if we only were to look at the slice of the Bible known as the Old Testament, the Tanakh by Jewish standards, then it's somewhat natural to come to the um, incorrect conclusion that there are not three persons because of the progressive nature of the revelation of God's word as it unfolds before his people. God builds on um, on previous truths in one section of the Bible, and he builds on that and continues to reveal more and more of himself as we work our way towards the writings known as the Apostolic Scriptures or the New Testament, till we eventually have this fullness of the revelation of God seen in the person of the Son of God and as revealed by the Holy Spirit himself. So um, Judaism believes that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is just another name for God himself. In other words, Judaism's perspective on the Holy Spirit is very similar and quite compatible with the a Unitarian perspective that we're reading about in these verses here, or this uh, article. So let's keep reading the article. They go on to say, for a further study, read the giver and his gift. The giver is God, the only true God, the Father, the Holy Spirit. So again, their perspective is that um, God is the only source and that the Holy Spirit is just another way of saying God as the source, and therefore the Holy Spirit, they're going to say, his gift is incorruptible seed, right? Reference to 1 Peter. His own divine nature, 2 Peter. Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. So God is the giver, and that which is given of God is spiritual uh, spirituality or spirit uh, indwelling or spirit empowering, Um uh, spirit, uh, divine uh, empowerment, those types of things are, are, are believed by many Unitarians, not all, but many as just um, gifts that God gives. In other words, God endows mankind with his own spirit, but we don't have to think of it as a separate person that's coming upon us. We can simply um, actualize it as the gift that God is pouring out upon us without saying it's a separate person. That's their perspective. I Again, I don't take that to its ex- absurd extremity, but I think there's some some aspects about what they're saying to be true, right? God, let me just kind of interject a little bit here. Maybe I'll insert a video that I have on this uh, topic into the while I'm talking. I'll play the video uh, uh, and I'll talk in the background. Um, th- those of you in live class, you're not going to see this only in post-production. But the idea is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is often described as coming upon people. And it's very natural to read about the Holy Spirit dwelling within people in the New Testament, so much so that sometimes we get the incorrect interpretation that the Holy Spirit was not in people in the Old Testament, and therefore this is something radically different taking place after Acts chapter 2. But if you actually go back and read uh, carefully, that's not quite the case. He was 
indwelling people in the Old Testament as well as coming upon people. And in the New Testament, we read verses where he's in versus on as well. So it's kind of an in versus on debate. And the point I'm trying to highlight in this interruption here is that when we refer to the Spirit of God as coming upon someone, as opposed to a dwelling within them, then it's natural to describe it as a gift, as uh, an imparting of a power or an ability um, or some other feature of the Holy Spirit where he's, he's motivating or empowering or moving a person to do something without necessarily indwelling that individual at a personal salvific level. So do you understand the slight difference? Um, it's almost as if Unitarianism doesn't give credit for the Holy Spirit to be able to come into a person as a person, as opposed to simply coming upon a person um, as a power or a gift or something like that. All right, so let's keep reading what this website has to say. Jesus expressed this truth in John 3, 6, which reads, quote, that which is born of spirit as in God the giver, is spirit, that is his nature, the gift. So that's their interpretation of this particular passage. God is the only true spirit, and that which comes from God is the gift from God, not necessarily the person sent from God, right? Jesus is a person. He's more than a gift in this example that I'm using. God sends Jesus into the world to teach the world how to um, find their way back to God the Father. In this relationship, God is giving Jesus as a gift to the world, but Jesus is more than just a um, an ability or a good feeling. Um, Jesus is a man. He's a person, right? He's a he's a whole separate being. He's he's not completely God in the sense that uh, he's he swallows up everything that what it means to uh, when we say the Father. But in the Unitarian perspective, the Holy Spirit isn't given the benefit of being a separate person. He's relegated to a gift. He's relegated to an idea. He's relegated to a concept, um, a uh, an ability, um, a talent, uh, or something else, right? They just say the gift. All right. Uh, they continue this website. If there is no such thing as the Trinity, like many people believe, uh, there is no such thing as, quote, the third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the standard um, Unitarian perspective. Um, they continue, when one is born again of God's Spirit, he does not receive a person, but rather the divine nature of God given to men to transform them into the image of his Son. Now, again, I'm not saying that what they're saying here is absolute heresy because there's some truth to what they're describing. Um, although I disagree about the person part, it is true that the divine nature of God is given to us for the very purpose of transforming us into the image of his son. So I believe that. So it's natural for me to kind of take what they're saying with a grain of salt. I reject their rejection of Trinity. I reject their rejection of the person of the Holy Spirit. But I accept and 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 um, agree with their uh, description of what happens when a person becomes saved. It is God's divine nature that we receive, right? It's not, um, I mean, but it's more than that. That's my point: is that um, God imparts to us 
some of his divine nature so that we can, in fact, live lives that are holy and pleasing to them, so we can turn away to him, so we can turn from sin and turn to righteousness, so we can be salt and light, we can be witnesses, we can be ambassadors. So we are given this gift, and it is, in fact, transformative, right? That's why it's described as old man, new man, like Paul talks about, right? It's described in terms of um, uh, uh, new birth, right? Being born again. It's radical change of, of from the inside out. So it is transformative. I agree with that. But why? But why? And I believe it's because we're given the very person of the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us, not just some gift from God. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And yet he's a person, right? So don't get lost in uh, the uh, explanation here. They go on to say, the Unitarian uh, website that I'm borrowing these notes from, this gift is referred to in Scripture by a number of synonymous terms, including, you ready for it? Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Truth. They go on to say, let me scroll up a little bit here. They go on to say, the spirit of sonship and the Holy Spirit of promise, as well as the new man and the divine nature, end quote. So as we look at all of these um, descriptors for what they're calling the um, gift of God, of, but which we Trinitarians are calling the Holy Spirit as a person himself, we're going to find that there's biblical support for the terminology the language is accurate. The lingo's right. You know, the spirit of sonship. They're not making those up. Those are terms that they borrowed from passages. I recognize them. And yet the um, difference in interpretation is, are we talking about a gift from God? Or are we talking about a person who comes to take up residency within us as human beings? Their conclusion, none of these suggest that the gift is a person. Of course, I disagree, but it's not the type of disagreement that I believe should separate me from fellowshipping with um, genuine Unitarians who are actual genuine believers. Um, I myself personally, let me let me just kind of uh, chase a rabbit for a split second. I myself personally believe that that um, believing in the Trinity is a salvation-based issue because I think once a person comes to that uh, realization by the Spirit of God, I think he can't turn back on that. Uh, once revelation is given to you, I think it's it's it would be wrong. It would be um, disastrous for me to reject that. However, um, I don't believe. By the same token, since I'm not the author of salvation, I don't control how men get saved. That's God's department. I don't believe you have to be able to articulate Trinity in order to come to a saving knowledge of God and Jesus. So you can accept Jesus as your Savior without quite being able to articulate and understand how Jesus is very God. Um, that's my point. And so um, we'll discuss this at a different time, but for now I just wanted to kind of throw it out, out there and let you guys understand that. Let you know that's my actual uh, perspective. All right, so this uh, website goes on to say, uh, speaking about Trinity, such teaching is not only biblically groundless, but also logically incomprehensible to the rational human mind. Okay, I understand that this is one of the natural pushbacks against Trinity, saying it's irrational, that it's um, not logical, right? It's 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 not one plus one plus one equals one, right? Like Trinitarians believe. Um, from that um, straw man perspective, okay, I understand what they're trying to say. We Orthodox Trinitarians with a small O Orthodox, 
we don't believe in three gods and we don't believe in one god who simply wears three masks those are ditches and i'll put a little graphic on the screen for you to see this there's a ditch known as modalism on one side that simply says there's one god with three masks and there's a ditch on the other other side um, known as tritheism that says there's actually three separate gods we don't believe in either one of those heresies right we believe in one god three persons so it's a little more nuanced a little bit more difficult to simply dismiss uh, out of hand they conclude by saying translators however influenced by trinitarian tradition have unnecessarily muddied the clear waters of the word in regard to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they're going to conclude by saying that the confusion is not God's, the confusion is ours, and it's our fault. It's because of traditional Trinitarian um, uh, translations, and that's what causes all the confusion. I think that what we've got is information limitation in some areas, and I'll, I'll close down this section with this statement, is that I think what we're dealing with in the Bible is that we have we have progressive revelation. We have a God who reveals himself over time. And so in this progressive revelation uh, that we're dealing with, the earlier parts represent what I'm calling information limitation. And then the later parts represent the unfolding of that progressive revelation. So that if you only take the earlier parts of the Bible and expect to find all that God is bound up in the words that you read in the Old Testament, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's not that God himself is lacking. It's that God has not uh, revealed all of who he is and what he is uh, doing with mankind in the earlier pages. He starts off uh, very gra very little and then gradually he he reveals more and more to his people to the prophets to uh to you know to the uh, the fathers and then eventually to uh his son yeshua who reveals the father fully and then the holy spirit is given to open our eyes as a community to see this even more and more and so um the Bible as a whole needs to be taken as a whole. And I think that's the weakness of the Unitarian perspective is that it's trying to put God, it's kind of trying to reverse that process and say that all that we need to deal with is what the Bible says uh, and focus most, mostly on those earlier parts. Um, and that becomes the, the foundation for what God is. So that becomes, I should say, they, they would probably say that this becomes um, really all that we need to accept. We don't need to um, kind of come along with our later translations and interpretations uh, known as Trinity to try to explain what God has already given to us. And so um, let me um, kind of articulate it the, 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 in, in my commentary. So I kind of gave you kind of the overview. Let me read it for you. What I say is that I personally have wondered out loud, right? This is my words, that if the Tanakh was all that we had to work with, in respects to understanding this mysterious God that we serve, like Judaism, you know, with the Tanakh, then perhaps Unitarian Christianity might actually have somewhat of a leg to stand on. Why? Since due to the unfolding uh, revelatory nature of the um, of the Word of God, right? Due to that fact, we don't really seem to have explicit what I call Trinitarian theology showing up until the later parts of the Bible, namely 
the um, the apostolic scriptures. And so that's what I was trying to kind of give you advance um, notice to. I kind of jumped ahead of myself in my own commentary. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. So whose fault is it that we have all this confusion? Is it our fault? Is it God's fault? Well, it's not God's fault, but it was God's plan to reveal himself to us gradually, progressively, right? God could have told us in the first few verses of, of Genesis, you know, in the beginning, God, the single being, who's made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what Moshe wrote. Instead, he simply writes, in the beginning, God, and there's nothing between the word God and the next word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, it doesn't even put the word Jesus there or the word made flesh like John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is going to reveal to us. Or like Paul's going to re- later reveal as well in Colossians and, and other parts of his letters that the very creatorship is attributed to Jesus, right? Hebrews tells us this as well. Jesus is given creative authorship because we know from progressive revelation that this is the case. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the creator. And yet Moses writes that in the beginning, God created. So we have to understand from hindsight, which is now 2020, based on the later revelation, that it is in fact God, the son, who is the agent of creation. And yet he's, it's more than just an agent of creation. You know, all things came to exist through him, by him, for him, and through him. Uh, Paul describes it. Or it might be John and Paul. They both use verbiage that's similar to the, that uh, by him, for him, through him, things like that. So the point is that if we only give the apostle, I'm sorry, if we only give the Tanakh um, the full amount of weight, then we're leaving off that progressive nature aspect of God, the progressive revelation, and we're going to be blinded to those truths that we would find later on in the scriptures. I go on to say in my commentary, to be sure. Speaking about if if this is all we had, then you know perhaps um, um, this might be uh, the best way to describe God, but it isn't right because of the progressive nature of God's revelation to us. Paul can write in First Timothy three sixteen quote Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, and what is it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels proclaimed among the nations, speaking of Yeshua, believed on in the world, and then eventually taken up in glory. That's uh, the ESV with the emphasis being my own. So we've got this scriptures, we've got this, this revelation that's given to us, but it's mysterious. We can't quite understand how the eternal God could veil himself in flesh, that the one God who is the um, eternal God without beginning, without end, could in fact become incarnated in the form of a man. How could the Word made flesh become flesh and dwell among us and walk among us like John talks about in the first chapter there in the prologue? I can't, can't quite understand it, and sometimes I can't even articulate it other than what the Bible gives me by way of verbiage. Paul calls this a mystery, and it's great, right? And so... We hold it with tension, the fact that there's one God and three persons. It doesn't mean that we Trinitarians can explain it all the time. I think, again, another weakness of Unitarian theology is that they're seeking to put God under a microscope and explain him and to strip away the mystery that Paul says exists. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes Unitarian theology thinks it's so smart that it has God figured out. 
They've neatly categorized him and cataloged him and, and put him on a flow chart. And now he's got um, definitions and parameters that can be understood by mere mortals. But I don't believe that God is that simple. He is complex in his nature and uh, he's greater than my understanding. But that doesn't stop me from worshiping him and accepting Yeshua as very God veiled in flesh. I go on to say, what is more, it is likewise well known in Christian circles that one of the theological dictionary definitions of mystery, so we're dealing with the Greek word mysterion. here's one of their definitions, right? If we were just to pull up uh, a, a, like a thesaurus definition, quote, the counsels of God once hidden but now revealed in the gospel or some fact thereof, right? Case in point stated. Once hidden, God didn't expect or God doesn't expect us to fully understand his nature and uh, who he is if we only read the early parts of his word. God knows that he's going to reveal more and more. That's why it's a mystery. God knows who he is. God knows his own nature. But he chose to reveal himself progressively to mankind, right? Um, even the name of Jesus doesn't show up in the five books of Moses, at least not referring to the man that we know as Jesus. You know, barring the name that Joshua, which is a kind of longer version of Jesus' name, Yehoshua and Yeshua. But the point I'm trying to bring, is, uh, bring up is that um, if you only accept the earlier parts of the Bible and you don't bring in the later revelation, then you're cutting yourself short. And I'll close with this and we'll pick this up again later on next week. God expects us to read the Bible from one end to the other. He expects us to take the foundational parts and truths of the word and allow further revelation to build upon that right? And in so doing, we're given more and more of a picture of this God that we serve. And we eventually are um, uh, met with Yeshua in the New Testament, who reveals the Father perfectly. You want to see the Father? Take a look at me. I'm paraphrasing what Yeshua said to Doubting Thomas, right? Unless I see the, you know, your hands and your nails, you know, show us the Father. You know, Yeshua's like, I've been with you this long and you're asking me to show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the point I'm trying to bring up in these studies is I think Unitarianism uh, is cutting themselves short. Don't discount the revelation that's given to us in the apostolic scriptures, and therefore don't discount Yeshua as being very God-veiled in flesh. And that'll do it for exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy. We're going to read uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25, as I mentioned that we we're going to do last week, and then we'll read the Romans 14, 10 through 13 passages. So the liturgy is just a little bit longer. Let's start in verse 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 right here. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? I've read this liturgy in the past. It's one of my favorite passages, and that's why I'm reading it again, because of the truths that are contained therein. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Verse 22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Verse 23, And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our forefathers. 
I'm sorry, to our fathers. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And the final verse, 25, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. As I've mentioned in so many times in the past, notice that God is enjoining upon Israel to do all of the commandments and that the doing of the commandments, the practicality of it, um, is that it will result in a righteous lifestyle that is recognized by God. This directly applies to Israel as a whole, as a people group, and it would apply to anyone whether you actually have genuine faith in God or not through his son, Messiah Yeshua. The practicality of keeping the commandments obviously should lead you to a faith in Messiah, but it has to start somewhere. So the day you start keeping the commandments is perhaps not the same day that you place your faith in Jesus. But once you start keeping the commandments, you're on the journey of righteousness. You're on the path of righteousness. And God wants you to stay on that journey until you reach the goal of the Torah, which is the teacher of righteousness, which is Yeshua. But the point I'm trying to highlight is that the journey is also important. Stay on the path of righteousness. It will be righteousness for us, Moshe says, in no unquestionable uh, terms, in no uncertain terms. And this is a practical type of righteousness that will eventually dead end or lead to or culminate in the forensic righteousness or the spiritual righteousness or the eternal righteousness that's only offered in Messiah Yeshua. Omen, Omen. Let's go back and read the Hebrew as well. Starting over here. In verse 20, the Hebrew says, Ki yishalcha vincha machar lemor ma ha'edot v'ha'hukim v'ha'mishpatim asher tziva Adonai Elohenu et chem. Verse 21, v'amarta lavincha avadim hayinu lefaro b'mitzrayim v'yotzienu Adonai mimitzrayim b'yad chazaka. Verse 22, Vaitain Adonai Otot Umoftim Gdolim Varaim Bamitsraim Bufaro Uvhol Beto Lene um I'm sorry Bufaro uh B uh Uvho Beto Leinenu Verse twenty three Vaotanu Hotsi Misham Lamaan Havi Otanu, latet lanu et haaretz asher nishba laavotenu. Verse 24. Vaitzavenu Adonai laasot et kol hachukim haile la yira et Adonai Elohinu latov lanu kol hayamim la chayotenu kahayom haze. And the last verse, verse 25. Utsedakatihye lanu. Ki nishmor lazot et kol hamitzvah hazot lifne Adonai Elohinu ka'asher tzivanu. Let's turn now to the Greek or the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament passage, Romans 14, 10 through 13, like we studied and we're continued to study, starting right there. Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Let me stop and interject. Notice that in my understanding of this passage, if the word brother here, the Adelphon, is broad enough for Gentiles to understand that it applies to covenant Jews, 
unbelieving Jews, a part of national Israel. They're, they're covenant-keeping on the natural level, so they're covenant brothers. But at the same time, notice that Paul uses the word brother to both groups. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Probably speaking to the um, uh, uh, non-Christian Jews. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Probably speaking to the Christians of the group. The, the Gentiles. Notice that if my purport, proposal of the word brother is accurate, then not only is Paul challenging the Gentile Christians to um, apply the term brother to the uh, uh, a non-Christian Jew, but at the same time, watch this, Paul is challenging the non-Christian Jew to allow the Christian Gentile as his brother. Isn't that challenging? You know, think about it. Does the synagogue consider the church as brothers, covenant brothers? I mean, they have a faith, genuine faith in God. It's the same God, it's the same monotheistic God, same scriptures of Israel, at least in Paul's day, before the New Testament was canonized and put into a book, right? I understand modern Judaism today rejects the New Testament, but to the degree that Old Testament, uh, that the Old Testament is is, is um, relevant to Christians today, isn't it the same Old Testament that the Jews are carrying? It's not a different book. So there must be some brotherhood relationship being shared between an unbelieving Jew and a believing Christian, a believing Gentile, to the degree that there's covenant brotherhood that we can talk about. That's the challenge. All right, sorry to interrupt my liturgy there. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so then each of us is to give an account of himself to God. And verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So go back and read the uh, the Greek of that real quick, starting over on that side of the page. The Greek says, Su de ti crines ton adelphon su, e kai su ti exuthenes ton adelphon su, pantes gar parastesamathato bemati tu theu. Verse 11, Gigraptai gar zo ego lege. Kurias hati emoi, kampse pan ganu kai pasa glosa exalama gesatai, examala gesatai to theo. Verse 12. Ara un hekastos hemon, peri hautu lagan dose to theo. And verse 13. Miketi un alelus crinomen, ala tuta crinate malanto me tithenai. I'm sorry, Tithenai, Praskama to Adelpho e Scandalon. And that'll be the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. Short questions, short answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Yeah, I did it, they did it, we did it together. We, we answered this question together, right? Let's take a look at this particular question. What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? E-Bible's question, and here's my answer. Here's our first passage. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's Galatians 5.1, rendered from the ESV, and that's the verse we read in our liturgy for tonight. And this is the question. What exactly is the slavery that Paul speaks of here? 
We know that to be in Messiah is to be truly free. We can recall Yeshua, Jesus' declaration from John 8, 36, where he says, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That's rendered from the King James Version. I like that rendering. How is it then that these Galatian Gentiles wish to return to the slavery that marked their former manner of life? Why would they want to do that? Can't they see that anything less than a complete commitment to the true gospel is not good news at all and will eventually result in slavery? Why are their eyes so blinded? As is to be expected, historic Christianity interprets the slavery of verse 1 as a return to Judaism, a return to living in the confines of Torah observance or law observance, a return to Sabbaths, keeping kosher, keeping the feasts, and of course that painful commandment called circumcision. So according to traditional Christian theology, obedience to Torah is equal to bondage. You can see my little graphic there of the guy with the you know big weight of Torah on his back and bondage over him as a Torah scroll. However, when we go back and study the historical and sociological context of the book of Galatians more closely, we're going to discover that the standard Christian interpretation of this verse doesn't actually fit with Paul's view of Torah, and most importantly, it does not follow from the scriptural view of the Torah. What is the biblical view of Torah? When we read it, here's what we're going to find. The Torah is not bondage. Let me say that one more time. The Torah is not bondage. However, if one places their trust in ethnicity and or Torah obedience, then that person is truly a slave to their old nature, whether they know it or not. And that, of course, is something that we have to reckon with when we're reading through passages like this. The battle lines were actually being drawn not between the relevance of Torah versus the relevance of Yeshua, as I understand the passage. Rather, the lines were being drawn between the necessity of Jewish identity for covenant inclusion versus the necessity of falling on the mercy and grace of Messiah for genuine covenant membership and forgiveness of sins. You understand that? There's a contest. We have to decide in our interpretation what the contest was, and therefore we can make a practical application once we've figured out the background behind the text and the context of what Paul is actually writing about and why he described the contest the way he did. Paul doesn't need to denigrate the Torah by calling it a yoke of slavery because that's actually not the focus of the argument in the first place, even though those are the words. As we shall see in the next verse, which is needed to develop the context of verse 1, circumcision is the fulcrum by which membership into first century Israel was being weighed. Now I know some of you are saying, but Ariel, circumcision is a commandment. It's Torah. I know, I know. Hang on. We have to define this word circumcision. So let's do that first. The Galatian Gentiles were at the crossroads of decision. Would they invest their faith in Jewish ethnicity? Or would they invest their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again? Look at Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Notice the verbiage. Now compare Galatians 5.2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All right, why did I bring these two verses up? Let's notice something. In 2.21, it's Christ versus the law. That's the verbiage that's being described. But in 5.2, it's Christ versus circumcision. So, after studying the Jewish background of Paul's life and knowing his propensity for carefully reasoned arguments, it should be amply clear that Paul did not mean Torah observance when he used the word law in Galatians 2.21. 
Yeah, I bet you didn't know that. And that's how we're going to have to develop the context. By the same token, it should be amply clear that he does not simply mean physical circumcision when he uses the word circumcision in Galatians 5.2. I bet you didn't know that either. All right, let's put these two back together and we'll see this. I'm going to flesh this out in my commentary, so don't worry if you're a little challenged or confused at this point in time. What are our conclusions? And I'll, I'll explain myself in the conclusion. In Galatians 5, 1 and 2, as well as Galatians 2, 21 that we read earlier, Paul states that if the Galatians wish to continue down the road constructed by those false teachers, the road described by these terms of first century Judaisms as the law, under the law, works of the law, and circumcision, all of those terms kind of work together. If they do that and reject the free offer of genuine and lasting covenant membership into Israel as offered by God and outlined in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, then, using the language of Galatians 5, 1 and 2, the work done by Yeshua's cross will indeed have no value for them at all. I know I have to pause there and kind of let you guys uh, digest that. The first century Judaisms were thinking that the Torah was for Jews only and that covenant membership was performed by their Jewish ethnicity or it was secured by their Jewish ethnicity. So that's the road of decision that these Gentiles had to contend with. Do we convert, become Jews, and then become covenant members and receive Torah? Biblical freedom in this context does not mean free from law. Again, knowing that Yeshua set us free from sin, its proclivities, its bondage, and its ultimate penalty helps us to understand Paul's teachings on this subject. It's the context of what Paul's talking about when he refers to freedom. The paradigm set by the Exodus narrative teaches us that sin, which is bondage, prevents us from truly worshiping God the way he deserves to be worshiped. Speaking for God, Moses said, let my people go so that they may serve me. Go back and read your Bibles again to the book of Exodus. That's the paradigm of bondage. Once Yeshua makes us alive in him and sets us free, we are then free to worship God properly without the fear of condemnation or bondage to sin. Do you understand the paradigm now? We're free to worship God. And what does that freedom look like? It's not free from from obligation to God. It's now free too. It means, this means that we're free to walk into Torah the way God intended it to be walked out. What does that look like? It's an imitation of Messiah by the Spirit and to the glory of God the Father. Omain, Omain. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I am uh, thankful to be on the receiving end of your grace and your mercy. 
bless you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your covenant-keeping power, for your ability to provide for us, and for your love and mercy that's poured out to us without measure. Continue to raise us up and strengthen us and give us a hope in these very dark and evil days that we live on, uh, live in. Help us to continue to expect the soon return of your son, Messiah Yeshua, um, for that is the blessed hope that we look forward to. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.